Okay, if we could all please have a seat. We're ready to get started. Can you all hear me okay? Is this microphone working? Not working, so I just have to project my voice. Oh, there we go. Okay, thanks, Father. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. Um, we're getting ready to start Georgia Heart Grand Rounds, and we are so excited to be a part of Research Week this week. And uh, before I call everybody up here, um, I just want to recognize a few folks that helped make this event happen. I'd love to thank Holly Jones and her team for inviting us to be a part of Research Week. I'd love to thank Jennifer Reagan, who is hiding out out there uh, for all the work that she does, and uh, especially Robbie back there who records these sessions and posts them online so that you can also continue to get your education credits by taking by watching these videos online as well. So thank you for all being here. Um, just a few housekeeping announcements before we get started. Um, these grand rounds are provided by Georgia Heart Institute with support from our industry partners. The planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with commercial interests. Through grants and research support, Dr. Lotfi has a relationship with Opsin and Boston Scientific. These relationships do not influence today's presentation. To claim CME credits today, answer the survey evaluation. If you're viewing online, the link will be posted into the chat. If you're here in person, you can grab a piece of paper from uh, Jennifer Reagan and he has a QR code on it and you can access the survey that way as well. So if you have any questions for the presenters, please hold until the Q&A segment. We will also have a panel discussion at the end. Online viewers, please type your questions into the chat and we will read them at the end. And now a few words from Dr. Holly Jones. Well, thank you, Suzanne, for all that, that you do uh, throughout the year to um, organize the Grand Rounds events. I mean, it's absolutely outstanding and so excited to have Dr. Lotfi, you here today, as well as Dr. Maloney to speak. But just a few words about our Research Week activity in uh, collaboration with Grand Rounds. It's, it's so exciting, I think, to, to celebrate research throughout the organization and um, to highlight that during this week. But, but thank you for the at attending the event today and for bringing your best every day. Um, for our patients and our community. Research Week is our annual system-wide celebration of the outstanding research and scholarly activities you're leading across the organization, across the specialties. So thank you so much to our planning committee who met monthly throughout the year and um, to all who contributed to the events today, especially Dr. Her uh, Heidi Ehrenreich. 
um, and all of her organizational um, talents. So uh, special thanks to you. And then um, in addition to that, research and quality improvement continues to lead to new FDA approved drugs and medical devices, as well as vital improvements um, to the standard of care. And we cannot do this work alone. And we rely on each other through that deep interdependence. And um, each one of our investigators here serves as a leader in their field. So thank you for what you do in leading these uh, innovative new research, quality improvement, and other work uh, throughout the, your career and uh, over the course of the year. Um, pioneering a new approach, obviously, is uh, difficult work. And we're often met with challenges and barriers, but we don't let that stop the advancement of the field of medicine and healthcare operations. So uh, the work not only impacts patients locally, but also nationally and beyond. Thank you to everyone here for dedicating your career to the betterment of society and in all you do to make a real difference. At the end of the day today and every day, I challenge you to ask yourself, what is one new thing I learned today? And what is one good thing I did today? So with that said, I'd love to welcome Dr. Samity up uh, to introduce our speaker. Thank you. Holly, thank you so much. Actually, my partner, Dr. Giuliano, is going to be introducing our speaker. I'm only here as a bridge to get him up here. But um, I, I will say that, um, Greg, uh, just, uh, just on behalf of Georgia Heart Institute, I want to thank um, Holly Jones for her efforts to really pioneer research within our organization. A lot of people think of you know, Northeast Georgia Health System as kind of a community program. And certainly, we take great pride in providing healthcare to our community and integrating very, very closely. But we also are an academic health system, right? We've got a number of residencies led by Dr. Delzell and his team. Um, we've got really a great research setup. And as someone who spent most of my life in those large academic centers, I, I would say we really have nothing here that we lack to get there. We've got a big innovation program that's getting started. We have big clinical trials. Um, and so we are having our cake and we're eating it, ladies and gentlemen, right? We also have an amazing new fellows, cardiology fellowship program that started this year. You see some of our fellows there. Um, and we have an amazing clinical trials unit there with Donna Patrick and her group. So with that said, um, Greg, why don't you uh, introduce Amir? Thank you, Habib. So it's my pleasure to uh, invite up um, Dr. Amir Latfi, who I've known for more than 20 years. He currently is the chief of cardiology at Bay State Medical Center in Western Massachusetts. Um, they are the site of a UMass Bay State combined uh, medical school program um, and train residents there as well. And Amir is known for his uh, astute clinical prowess um, and a high-end complex coronary interventionalist, as well as a structuralist doing left atrial appendage closure. On the research side, he uh, is going to bring to you today his passion for coronary physiology and imaging, which will really fit in nicely with what Dr. Maloney is going to present as well. I think um, uh, very kindred spirits, uh, they'll find out about each other. So without further ado, I will ask Amir to come up and uh, wow us with this presentation. Uh, 
Um, thank you for having me here. Uh, I want to thank Dr. Samedi, Dr. Giuliano, Dr. Jones, and Suzanne for being great, uh, for setting everything up uh, to be here. I will let you know this. It was very hard for Greg to say those words about me. <laughs> so, uh, but I, I really do appreciate uh, being here. And um, I feel honored to be in front of um, Habib, I, I will say, because he is world renowned in, in the world of physiology and imaging. So you have the world experts. So it's a little uh, humbling to be in front of here. So, so just uh, thank you. So um, um, starting, so a little bit of ba background. Um, doing coronary physiology and imaging over time you realize that a lot of assumptions go into your numbers. And as we were doing invasive imaging and physiology, more and more literature has come out about how to do non-invasive, whether it's, uh, I'm sure you have heard coronary CT, FFR, or um, QFR, or something called CathWorks. CathWorks is based on Ohm's law, and a lot of other of the non-invasive modalities are based on computational fluid dynamics, which are basically engineering and math, and uh, way beyond my uh, understanding. And that's why I think I became a physician. So, um, so going back, I know down the street, down um, in Emory, where Dr. Grunswick was, you know. Going back to the original concept of coronary stenting, coronary physiology was involved in measuring gradients. And uh, understanding how physiology initially, even in the early stages, had an impact. Here's an example of an early case where you had a tight lesion, you put a balloon in, and uh, that's where you see the pressure drop occur. And then you release the balloon and you see what happens post-intervention. So early, early concepts. We have known for a long time that angiograms or luminograms fail to accurately assess the hemodynamic significance of coronary lesions. Even concept of you know, measurements like quantitative coronary angiography also are not very accurate to define what uh, significant a lesion, um, uh, how hemodynamically significant a lesion will be. Fractional flow reserve, a concept that was uh, developed um, as a, uh, which was defined as a ratio of distal to proximal pressures across the stenosis, was the leading um, invasive evaluation of how significant a lesion is. Subsequently, that kind of led into non-hyperemic resting ratios, which I'm not really going to get into, but it has opened up the field of invasive measurements of is a lesion significant or not significant. And those are post-cycle PDPA, resting full cycle, with a diastolic pressure ratio, IFR, and these are all different company names you will get to know. Um, have, have kind of branched off from FFR, if I may say. Um, 
So these are basically, um, anybody who does hemodynamics will recognize Bernoulli's and Purcell's equations about flow and resistance in a vessel, which are very important to understand, and how the different aspects of flow and turbulence can um, impact your pressure readings. Why is this important? Because a lesion that looks very tight or could be tight on an angiogram, depending on the flow dynamics, could be non-hemodynamically significant versus a flow that, that might not, uh, a lesion that might not look significant based on the flow dynamics could be significant. So that's where the concept of FFR, which if you really think about it is Ohm's law, input, output, and resistance really comes from where you develop and is based on hyperemia. And these days there's many me mechanisms to develop hyperemia, but I'll stick with the one that's the most common, which is adenosine, which causes um, microvascular dilatation, which increases flow across the stenosis. And this is very simple, but this is basically the concept that your flow, uh, your pressure before a lesion, your pressure after a lesion, this is your right atrial pressure and the impacts it can have on your ratio. The earliest um, study um, came from uh, Netherlands and they were the pioneers regarding this. It was a small sample size, believe it or not, in cardiology, 45 patients. They did three different kinds of uh, stress tests and basically they found an FFR below 0.75 had a 88% sensitivity for picking up stenosis. If it was above 0.75, it basically excluded ischemia on a stress test. And you see the positive predictive, negative predictive values and accuracy. And there's been many, many studies. And I know Dr. Samadhi did a study looking at stress test and FFR. Um, in these measurements. And then just to put a concept of where all these resting pressures come from with instantaneous wave free ratios was basically measuring the diastolic portion. And in this model, it starts about 25% after the dichrotic notch where when diastole st starts and five milliseconds before the end. And using that, resting ratio where it is assumed, and I underline that, assumed that there is um, um, your microvasculature is in a dilated state, if I may say, that you get this ratio. And all the other whole cycle um, measurements um, in the different fields are basically based on this. And subsequently, two studies compared, two large clinical studies compared um, FFR with IFR in a non-inferiority format, and they found it to be similar. And th this is just to show where that, um, this is a com combination of flow and pressure. And I won't get into the details, but you can see as, as the pressure decreases, the flow increases, and you see in, the diast in, in this diastolic segment where they feel like the wave, uh, I'll put that in quotes, wave-free cycle is identified. 
So where does this land clinically? There's been two early, early studies, and there's been many studies, but um, these are the two I'm gonna emphasize. The first was the original one that looked at FFR in, in tight lesions was defined as less than 0.75. So what they did was they took patients whose FFR was less than 0.75 and uh, they would stent those and they had patients who had FFR greater than 0.75, which they didn't stent, but in the angiographic arm, they would stent and they followed them for five years and they actually had some 15 year data. And what they found was the people that FFR less than 0.5 stented, they did well. FFR less than 0.75 or greater than 0.75, they deferred, that's the deferred group. And FFR greater than 0.75, they stented. Those group actually did the worst, the FFR greater than 0.75. Subsequently, FAME was the randomized trial of looking at patients now the FFR cutoff here was 0.80, equal to equal or less than 0.80, randomized to angiographic arm versus invasive arm of stenting. And again, what they found was over five years, there was no significant difference except in the urgent revascularization arm, which favored the FFR arm. And what you also found, you use less dye and less stenting if you use invasive coronary angiography. So does that cement everything? No, we have now more recent studies. One is Future and one is Ripcord where they used basically standard using invasive FFR versus angiograms and they looked at outcomes. And Future stopped early and Ripcord um, looked at long-term and there was no significant difference in outcome between using FFR, invasive coronary measurement versus angiogram evaluation of um, cardiovascular outcomes. So that kind of um, put a question of how to best use, to best use coronary physiology, invasive coronary physiology. So where does this lead us then? If you have invasive uh, coronary physiology that can be useful in selected populations, whether to proceed with intervention or not, can you step back and use the same concept in a non-invasive way? So where, this is where um, computational fluid dynamics came in. And this is the principle actually of coronary CT FFR where they use computational fluid dynamics, boundary assessment, and assumptions. Because what we talked about was using um, in FFR, you give medications to induce hyperemia, correct? So in coronary CT, you make assessment, uh, uh, you make assumptions based on the boundary of the artery, branching of the artery, what is the input, which is the pressure coming in, and what is the hyperemic pressure after the narrowing? So what I'm trying to get at is you're using a lot of assumptions to get to where you want to go. Now, 
before I get to the next slide, so that sounds very interesting, right? And they have done a couple of studies, which again, have some showed benefit and some showed not so much benefit, just looking at the anatomy portion. We know when we use coronary CT, we tend to end up stenting more, right? And we know when we use intravascular ultrasound versus invasive coronary physiology, we tend to end up doing more procedures. So there's that old saying, if you don't want to stent, use FFR. If you want to stent, use IVIS. So because when you go in there and you see the amount of disease, um, you, you get a little bit biased about what to do. So going to the next step, we, and there, there has been many works in many center. I was fortunate enough to meet uh, um, a mechanical engineer who does a lot of coronary, sorry, I shouldn't say coronary, a lot of hemodynamic work. And I actually will tell you his main research, which is now he's working with um, the Department of Defense is using flow dynamics in a fish model of propulsion um, in the ocean of how the dynamics work and how they can use it, um, which I don't know. Uh, I don't know what they're doing with the defense work, but he's working with that right now. But he does a lot of hemodynamics work about pressure and flow in those kind of situations. And we got to talking and we talked about coronary physiology and, and he used um, proper orthogonal decomposition. And we'll get that in a second. So it's basically using computational fluid dynamics, which again, what I found out is all CFD is not the same. And you know, you have an expert here, which you're very fortunate on who's gonna speak after. But what I realized is if you don't use proper CFD techniques, it bleeds and uh, everything that follows is inaccurate. So um, what POD does is try to take that, all that information and do it faster. So it, um, and I wanna uh, thank the two people that you saw, Dr. Siddiqui and Dr. Um, Carlini, who gave me these slides because I, there's no way I would have made these slides myself. <laughs> so um, so um, uh, regarding this. So um, proper orthogonal decomposition, what it does, what my understanding is, it takes values and it uses a numerical method. And there's many methods used, um, but numerical method uses algorithms based on approximation. So you're doing a lot of approximation and you're creating multiple, multiple models based on those approximations until those models start fitting together well. And from those models, you can have, um, in, in our models, we had over 800 different models. Subsequently, those models were pared down Let me go back. Where was it? Oh, I think. 
I must have missed, um, took a slide out. Suddenly, the models were pared down using rock to five models that seemed to accurately match our original CFD based on pod. And so what we decided to do was the following. Um, um, we applied for a grant, which we received, and this is completely exploratory. It's about 20 patients. Patients who need intervention, we do flow, hyperemic pressure, resting pressure, intravascular ultrasound using 60 megahertz to get the best resolution, pre-intervention, post-intervention, and each segment is marked and analyzed because the more data we have, the better our model will be. So just to give you um, an example, here's our first, uh, this was the LAD lesion here, and this is post-intervention. And this is our um, coronary flow, which we use Doppler pre and post um, intervention. And we see what happens to, and uh, we used um, both FFR and in this case, we used DPR. And we measured flow, pressure, and diameter for each segment. Now, unfortunately, I will tell you this, I got this slide set late to Suzanne for one reason. I've been trying for the last week, and this is the problem with, um, I guess I, I wanna use it broadly, but waiting to the last second to prepare things. I couldn't download my intravascular ultrasound images, so I apologize. But imagine what we do is we go as distal as possible safely, put a target, do a pullback, and basically measure every millimeter segment to come back from distal to proximal for our own lesion. Out of the 11 patients, seven been, have been LAD and four have been RCA um, in, in, those, in those types. And so we go through each segment and, and do this and do we do pre and post. I will tell you, fellows don't like to scrub in with me on this issue because it, it, it takes uh, an additional 20 to 25 minutes to do this. And then you have to go and you have to be meticulous in every segment of your measurement to get the numbers right. And if you don't, then you have to wait and do it all over again. So, um, so, so measurement, so, and we use intracoronary adenosine. Um, for the left, left system, we use 240 mics. And for the right, we do 120. So again, second case, same kind uh, of uh, pre, post. Obviously, we're trying to minimize having any distal disease in our vessel because that will compromise um, what we're trying to do. The other thing I want to show you is these diagonal branches and the circumflex branches. As we have learned, these will have a significant impact in how to um, do um, uh, measure. And here's an interesting case. Our coronary flow reserve before we started the case was higher, even though we had a significant uh, FFR than after. And we measured this person 
multiple times because to make sure our Doppler readings were accurate. accurate. Um, so I'll go through what I learned, uh, what we learned uh, in this situation. Again, huge wraparound LAD, significant lesion here, post-intervention. We see our numbers pre and post. I won't bore you with um, these things, but just showing the different kind of lesions. Some are diffuse, some are longer, some are sh uh, shorter and the numbers uh, we get from pre and post. This one had a significant response both on the FFR pre, uh, I mean FFR post and flow after. So what do we do with this? So right now we're just uh, in our phase, we're just truly just measuring flow. The next concept is after we have completed our 20 patients and have more data is to combine flow and pressure in each segment. But so these are some of the things that um, we move forward. So we, we looked at wall stress, which you'll hear more on, on the next segment. And we looked at um, the velocities that happen pre and uh, post stress. And you can see high velocity, low velocity, and where is hugging in the lesion in the superior side, you see a much higher velocity and a lower shear force on this side. And this is what it looks like post stent. Now, if you notice this, there are no branches here that we did. So that will come into play later. Oh, so this is what I was looking for. So, um, relative information content. So we went through and they looked at over 800 models. And what they did, they, they pared it down and they found these five modes that, that really captured and were consistent with the original CFD we did. Um, things that most of you already know about um, the left coronary system. This is just because we have more left coronary than right coronary. But um, let me just go through. So these are our four patients that, that I showed you. All LAD, so circumflex, diagonals, we didn't look at septals. And here, what you see is high velocity forms, post stent, what happens to the velocity, the flows into the artery. Same thing here, all throughout, what happens pre and post and how it impacts. So these are measuring mean flow. This mode two measures flow after the lesion because that's also important. What happens to the flow post pre-intervention and post-intervention? Mode three also looks at the plaque and what happens within the plaque across the patients. And then here we look at mode four about what happens within the branches when you include the branches within. And what we found out was, I'll just use the circumflex 
the difference in numbers, if you don't include the circumflex versus you include the circumflex, it's huge. And then the larger the diagonal branches and the points has a significant lesion. So, so all these variables, so after we did our first three, we had to realize that, actually I will tell you, after the first one, we had to, we had to make sure that even for the diagonals, we had to go in and measure the diagonal branch diameters to make sure we get a much more accurate response. And again, this third flow after the plaque, which are, again, near the regions and what happens to them. And as you can see, each one by the, the flow velocities and color, you can see how quickly from here, you can see here is low velocity pre-intervention and look at what happens here within the stented segment. You actually have more turbulent flow. And again, what we know when you get turbulent flow, eddy currents, even within the stents, it increases the risk of events post-intervention. So what have you learned? We have learned that your original assumptions um, need to be validated and you have to go back and, and recalculate based on what you see to get better accurate information. Highest energy modes, highlight the areas of concern and illustrate the success of the stent procedure. So we saw the high velocity flows versus low. And we came up with five modes that are most consistent and match with our original CFD. And again, why are we doing pod? Because it makes the work 10 times faster. Why is that important? If we can go to the next step, we need real-time information. So the, mo the moment you do an angiogram and want to calculate shear stress and pressure drops, you need it in real time to make decisions. And uh, if you're doing CFD, you need some way to do those ag calculations in real time. And the nice thing about this is you can calculate uh, real um, uh, time while shear stress while you're doing the procedure. Um, so that's basically it. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, really an excellent talk. Um, a lot of great technology, a lot of good questions. And I think what Amir showed us is when you merge clinicians with clinical questions and engineers and vascular biologists, you really start understanding, you know, how things work and how we can make them better. So fantastic. So listen, without further ado, let's have our second presentation. And then maybe after our second presentation, we'd like to invite some of our panelists um, and have a real kind of roundtable discussion with a lot of questions and answers from the audience. So it's my great pleasure to um, now invite David Maloney. Dr. David Maloney is the co-director of the Georgia Center for Cardiovascular Biomechanics and Data Modeling. Um, David um, did his PhD at the University of Limerick in Ireland, um, and that was in 2010 after which he came over to the United States and did a PhD at Georgia Tech uh, with um, Don Giddens. And Don um, is one of the foremost um, 
engineers on the planet, arguably, in the field of computational fluid dynamics. Don Giddens was the dean of engineering at Georgia Tech, so he handpicked the best postdocs. And so David worked with Don for a number of years, and I had the great privilege of collaborating with the group as an interventional cardiologist. Um, so I got to meet David. Um, and then after three or four years in Don's lab, um, David um, sort of came over and helped lead some of the multidisciplinary work we were doing at Emory with Georgia Tech. So we worked together at Emory for a while. And then when I was moving over here, one of the first people I wanted to try to entice and recruit was David because he is the, the wizard behind the curtain and a lot of the work that we've done over the last decade or longer. Um, so anyway, uh, today, David's going to talk about, <laughs> let me get the title of his talk. Um, so he's going to talk to us about how will advances in simulation and artificial intelligence augment cardiology practice. So zooming out and sharing with you some of his insights. Come on up, David. Uh, thank you, Abib. Um, thanks also to Holly and uh, Suzanne for organizing everything. And uh, yeah, looking forward to giving this talk and zooming out a little bit on, um, I guess it's probably a little more clinically focused than Amir was, which is a little ironic given my engineering background. <laughs> so, so I may be out of depth on this one as he felt out of depth talking about the engineering stuff. Okay, so yeah, the, the title of the talk is How Will Advancements in Simulation and Artificial Intelligence Augment Cardiology Practice? And what I want to do is basically look at a couple of, you know, where we are right now with simulations and, and artificial intelligence, look at some strong studies and, uh, you know, where I think we're going with this. And then finally, I want to talk a little bit about the research we're doing here at Georgia Heart Institute involving simulations and artificial intelligence. So start with some background. Uh, we already got, got a great explanation about some simulation stuff from Dr. Latvi, um, but you know, with simulations, we're generally trying to simulate an actual physical process by solving these governing equations. And for example, we could be simulating the expansion of a stent inside an artery, or we could be simulating coronary pressure and flow as we just saw. Uh, so some of the strengths of simulations, particularly um, in relation to you know, if we're comparing to artificial intelligence, is that simulations uh, generalize very well. They, you, you can use a different anatomy and um, you should get the correct solution um, because it's based on physical uh, equations. We can do things such as in silico trials. So we can um, examine multiple hypothet hy hypothetical scenarios, such as, you know, on a computer, we can simulate device deployment or device placement, and we can look at how these things vary. Uh, some weaknesses, uh, you know, as we, we just heard that um, there's a lot of assumptions required in re regarding these boundary conditions. And what boundary conditions are is, so with, with simulations, we can only actually simulate a portion of the anatomy. Maybe it's your aorta. And so we need to actually incorporate everything outside of that region. And, and that's what are called boundary conditions. And these require assumptions. Sometimes they're good and sometimes they're bad. 
Uh, finally, it can be slow to compute and you know, there's a narrow range of applications. So artificial intelligence then is a broad term incorporating fields of machine learning and deep learning. And today mostly refers to, to deep learning. Um, it learns and makes predictions from data is, is basically what we're talking about. The strengths of AI, again, more relative to simulations are it's capable of actually learning a physical process. So you know, we have CTFFR, which is using computational fluid dynamics to um, compute FFR, but it can also be learned from data. So we have a such thing as machine learning FFR. Um, fast inference, you know, we get an answer from these AI um, models in, in milliseconds, whereas simulations can take minutes to hours or days. Uh, and finally, you know, there's a broad range of applications from image segmentation to disease classification. Um, some of the weaknesses, again, requires a large amount of data covering the full spectrum of anatomy and disease. So this is about generalization, can be poor. Um, it's a black box as well. And, and so explainability is not inbuilt. Um, and finally, then sometimes these things are, you know, are very complementary. Um, AI can be used to segment coronary arteries where simulations can be used to actually calculate the blood flow. So I'm going to show some, some examples um, of, of where, you know, I think there's really good work being done, kind of the state of the art right now for both simulation and artificial intelligence. So starting off with CTFFR, which I think most of the, the clinical audience uh, are quite familiar with. Um, it uses computational fluid dynamic simulations to compute blood flow and pressure in coronary arteries. And then fractional flow reserve is actually derived from the pressure. And so this is the first cardiovascular simulation-based diagnostic. Uh, and the most recent study is the Pacific trial um, from 2019. And, the, and uh, for uh, heart flow CTFFR, and it was compared against uh, SPECT, PET, and CT alone um, for uh, diagnosing ischemia based on FFR. As you can see in the, in the graphic, uh, CTFFR had the highest area under the curve of 0 0.94, uh, better than all the other modalities. However, one, one, one caveat that was pointed out in this study was that in the secondary analysis performed based on an intention to diagnose. I, for that was in where we had non-evaluable vessels and these were deemed positive. Um, the area under the curve for FFRCT is reduced to 0 0.79 and it's inferior to PET. Um, I think it's debatable whether you know that's a, the correct way to apply FFRCT, um, but it's you know important to note. But you know, I think this trial and the other trials really established CT FFR as a, a strong diagnostic for, for ischemia. The next example I want to talk about is for left atrial appendage occlusion um, and a recent PREDICT LAA trial that was um, presented at TCT. And it, saw, it sought to assess whether the use of computational modeling um, done by the company FEOPS from Belgium when planning for left atrial appendage closure may impact procedural efficiency and outcomes. So the primary endpoint in this study was incomplete left atrial appendage closure with residual contrast leakage. And then the main secondary endpoint was um, you know, how it impacted procedural efficiency. So in the, the study design, 200 patients were enrolled. And 100 patients were randomized to just the standard planning with CT. And another 100 patients were enrolled to the simulation arm. 
So looking at in more detail what, what, what these two arms were. So the standard cardiac CT analysis, um, CT images are acquired, dimensions are, are measured, and um, devices can be, you know, the device can be um, pre-planned, the device can be pre-selected based on these dimensions. For the CT simulation arm, again, the same CT images are acquired. A 3D reconstruction is done of the left atrial appendage. And you can see we also have below that um, the actual uh, device, the amulet, a model of it. And so what they do then is they simulate multiple scenarios of how the device is placed and what size device is implanted. And they can choose the optimal device and size based on um, the, how, how well it, it, it occludes the, the uh, appendage. So the results of that trial, um, it narrowly missed the primary endpoint related to prevention of leak with a p-value of 0 0.08. Um, you know, in my opinion, it was a pretty difficult endpoint to, to achieve. Um, so they do quite well to come close to it. Um, though it did significantly reduce the number of devices. So the number of um, devices used was 15% was less in the um, simulation arm of the trial. And it was also a significant reduced number of repositioning with a reduction of 50% in the number of repositionings. So significant benefits and efficiency from using these simulations. And so the next thing I'll talk about are simulated clinical trials or you know, what are referred to as in silico trials. And this is you know, where I think that the technology is probably heading. So medical device clinical trials are, are costly patient recruitment can be challenging you know and we, you know we, we often you know does the patient pop population cover the full range of anatomical variants or disease variants in these trials typically not typically we're just looking at a you know the most simple population possible to, to show the device is effective where simulations though we can examine a large number of anatomies devices and physiology however there are some challenges simulations cannot fully replicate in vivo conditions. Uh, we do require standardization of tools and tests. And you know, I think the FDA will have some involvement here at some stage. And dynamic changes are difficult to account for in simulations. If a patient starts you know, running, going up the stairs, th these things are not easy to account for in simulations. And finally, it's quite difficult to match clinical endpoints to simulation endpoints. You know, in a clinical trial, typically an endpoint can be death or, or MI, and these are not things we can simulate, so often we're using um, surrogates instead. So looking at what was called the FD-PASS, the Flow Diverter Performance Assessment Trial, this was the first in silico trial um, performed based on intracranial flow diverters. Um, so flow diverters are primarily used to treat uncoilable aneurysms of the internal carotid artery. And the question was asked, can an in silico trial replicate the outcome of conventional clinical trials? So there's been a couple of conventional trials, PUFS and Premier, that um, investigated um, flow diverters. And so they use the same inclusion criteria as these studies. So the primary endpoint in this uh, trial was a post-treatment aneurysm mean velocity reduction of greater than 35%. So again, this is, in the simulations, they simulate um, the flow in the artery prior to the flow diverter, and then after the flow diverter being implanted, and they can measure the mean velocity reduction in the uh, in the aneurysm. 
And so this has been shown to be a, an, act, an accurate surrogate for complete aneurysm occlusion. So, you know, clinical trials were actually measuring to see if it's occluded. We can't do that um, in a simulation, so we need to use a surrogate. So simulated device was a, a pipeline embolization device from Medtronic. And then the device size selection in the first, in the um, Instatoco trial was based on um, the guidelines. Um, so the patient population so they, that they used for the Instatoco trial, so it was cr they created a virtual population of patients from a database. And, these dem and the demographics were made to match those of existing trials that we just mentioned. Then the anatomy is created from 3D rotational and geography images. And um, the inclusion criteria in the trial, again, match those of existing trials, wide neck aneurysms and unruptured aneurysm arising from the internal carotid artery. And so then the results of the Incidical trial, um, so the, the clinical trials, PUPS, Aspire, and Premier reported angiographic occlusion rates of 74.77% at approximately one year. The FD-PASS, which is our Incidical trial, reported a surrogate occlusion rate of 82.9% and 67.1% for normal and hypertensive simulations. So as this is a simulation, they're able to simulate both normal pressure and hypertension. And you can see that the um, occlusion rate that they simulated is in the same you know, um, range as those in the clinical trials. And one thing they noted then was the higher risk of incomplete occlusion in hypertensive patients um, as they saw in the simulations, is not something that was reported in conventional clinical trials. So this is something that could be looked at um, easily in simulation, but not so easily um, when we're testing things in patients. So, you know, overall, uh, you know, this is the first in silico trial, and I think it's going to be the first of many um, going forward. So moving towards artificial intelligence and some of the applications that uh, I think are, you know, you know, very strong. So the first one is one called EchoNet, and this is basically a model for one segmenting the left ventricle from echocardiographic images, two, automatically predicting ejection fraction just from the the echo video, and then three, um, assessment of cardiomyopathy uh, with reduced ejection fraction. So on, on the bottom right, then we have the the accuracy of this model. Um, we have the ejection fraction from humans on the x-axis, and then we on the y-axis, we have what the algorithm computed, with the blue and red lines being an internal data and the red one being uh, external data. And so, you know, there's strong correlation between humans and um, the algorithm. And on the right, it shows the area under the curve for um, um, uh, detecting cardiomyopathy, um, where the uh, cardiomyopathy was defined as a uh, ejection fraction less than 50%. So this was kind of the development of the model. And then again, recently a, a TCT, um, the model was uh, using a randomized clinical trial. So the aim was, uh, it was a single center study assessing the performance of AI versus a sonographer. And it's the first blinded clinical trial of AI in cardiology. The primary outcome, the frequency and degree of change from initial either being the AI or the sonographer assessment to final cardio cardiologist assessment. Uh, and you can see that in the top right diagram. First of all, the sonographer does the scanning. Then uh, the image assessment is randomized one-to-one -one between AI and the sonographer. 
and then finally um the the cardiologist reads um re 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 reads the uh ai or the sonographer assessment um blinded and so a substantial change where the where the cardiologist edited um, the segmentation by uh, ai or the sonographer was defined as more than 5% change in uh, left ventricular ejection fraction. Um, and the secondary outcomes, the main one here of interest, I think was the um, sonographer time and also the cardiologist time. Um, and then the bottom right then also shows the amount of data required to train this model. Um, so we have mean absolute error in ejection fraction. So the current commercial offerings are typically around four, nearly 5%. Um, the, the paper I just showed you in the previous slide was trained on uh, 10,000 uh, videos, and that uh, had improved um, mean absolute error. And then for this trial, they trained on an order of magnitude more videos, so 147,000 um, four-chamber um, echocardiographic videos. And you can see again that the error continues to reduce with the increase in data. Um, so the trial then, um, 3,495 pa patients were eventually uh, randomized with 1740 to uh, AI and 1755 to the sonographer. And this is an example of um, the AI segmentation of the, um, the particular chamber. So looking at the results, um, on the, for the primary outcome, substan substantial change in the AI was made 292 times or 16% of uh, studies. Whereas with sonographers, it was done 478 times or 27% of studies. So the initial assessment of a left ventricular ejection fraction by AI was found to be non-inferior and superior to initial sonographer assessment. Then if you look at the secondary outcomes, um, you can see the sonographer time, um, for, or the initial, I guess, assessment was zero seconds for AI, whereas it's 119 seconds for sonographer. Um, and the cardiologist read afterwards is 54 seconds for AI and 64 seconds for a sonographer. So AI guided assessment took less time for cardiologists to overread and was more consistent with historical cardiologist assessment. Um, so almost a full two minutes safer by in, in an echo study, um, but just by using AI. So then the same group of uh, teams turned their attention to left ventricular hypertrophy. And the aims was to assess the accuracy of deep learning in quantifying ventricular hypertrophy. Um, and so and then predicting the cause of increased LV wall thickness um, being due to either hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or cardiac amyloidosis. Um, and so on the bottom left, actually, so this model is like the previous model is open source and it can be downloaded. And so I did that, I trained the model and this is an example of the output of the model for measuring um, dimensions of the of the left ventricle um, and the previous model is, al is also available as well so on the top right then we have the area under the curve of the model for um, detecting the cause of hypertrophy um, and again you can see that the area under the curves are quite high for both uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and cardiac amyloido amyloidosis so where is this one going next so there's also another trial, um, which is the artificial intelligence guided echocardiographic screening of rare diseases. Um, it has a target enrollment of 300 patients for an observa observational trial, where it was screening echoes for cardiac amyloidosis. 
And then the AI algorithm will produce a probability of cardiac amyloidosis that will trigger referral to speci speciality clinic for further evaluation. So this is now getting into that area where we're using AI to actually predict disease in patients. And then finally, I want to highlight one more study where you know we just saw where it took 127,000 images and uh, manual segmentations to train a model. Um, but we're getting to the stage with these technologies where we don't require um, all that manual um, annotation of images. So this one study trained 377,000 pairs of X-ray and just the corresponding radiology report. Um, so basically, the model learns to uh, you know find reports that are similar to the images and identify those you know as being close to each other and reports that are different being far away from each other. So not training for the exact classification of disease actually allows these models to greater to generalize much greater. Um, so they evaluated the model on an external data set to test the accuracy in five different pathologies. You can see the area under the curves on the bottom right um, for three different radi radiologists versus the model. Um, there was pretty good agreement between uh, radiologists and um, and the model. In some cases, the model or the model beating out the radiologists. Okay, so you know, the question has been asked. Then, does the use of AI provide benefit? Um, so, are there enough clinical trials? So one caveat, really, I mean, not all applications of AI really do require clinical trials. Um, but a systematic review of 19,737 studies between 2012 and 2021 that used AI found that only 41 were randomized clinical trials. And 51% of these studies were conducted at single sites. Most of them did not adhere to um, the accepted guidelines for reporting AI studies. Uh, and many also had limited inclusion of participants from underrepresented minority groups. And, and the reason that's a, a concern is because these AI models can be very biased, and that can, um, you know, if it's trained on one group and not tested on, or not trained on one other group, it can perform differently. Um, there is an increased trend towards um, more randomized trials of this, but, you know, in terms of the actual evidence, the benefit of these, um, there's not a huge amount of evidence to date. Okay, so now I, I want to talk a little bit about the research at the Georgia Center for Cardiovascular Biomechanics and Data Modeling here at uh, NGHS. Um, so there's kind of three focus areas of, of research that we're interested in. The first is biomechanics of, of atherosclerosis, and the second is device biomechanics. And these are both simulation-based work where we simulate blood flow. And we looked at wash shear stress, as we'd seen already from Dr. Latvi. Uh, and then the other area of interest we have is machine learning-based cardiovascular imaging. Um, so currently, with our simulation-based uh, research, we're collaborating on three NIH-funded projects with the University of Utah, uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital, and uh, Cornell University. So I want to highlight just a couple of the, the studies that we've done and are currently doing. Um, one of the most exciting we've done was looking at the relationship between high wall shear stress and plaque vulnerability. Um, so we use simulation-based prediction of myocardial infarction. So this is based on data from the FAME2 trial that we heard about a little while ago. 23 patients with MI were propensity matched with 23 non-MI patients. We did 3D reconstructions from angiographic images, and you can see that in uh, box A on, on the right. And then we assessed this wall shear stress, 
by dividing lesions into proximal, mid, and distal sections. And just as a reminder, wash shear stress again is that frictional force of blood um, as, as blood moves through the artery. So we found a higher wash shear stress in the proximal segments of lesions was predictive of MI and had incremental prognostic value over FFR. And so the, the Kaplan-Meier curve on the right, um, box B, you can see that and the patients with wash shear stress proximal greater than 4.71 um, had a lower survival rate than patients without that. Um, so this is kind of this is one of the first real studies showing that wash shear stress and biomechanics can be used to predict patient outcomes. And you know, will be next thing is to try and test this using maybe different modalities and larger pop, patient populations. The next thing I want to highlight then is our research looking at the hemodynamics of stented vessels. Um, this image here just highlights the process of generating this wash shear stress at the end. Um, it's, a, it's a complex process that takes, you know, clinician involvement in acquiring images and also requires um, segmentation of the, of the images. And finally, uh, we get towards block number seven, which is computing the wash shear stress. So this image here is actually showing what the wash shear stress looks like as we go through the vessel. So you can clearly see the footprint of the uh, stent and um, the differences in shear stress as we move through the vessel. So we have the blue, which is our lower wash shear stress, and red is the higher shear stress. And in between these stent struts, what we tend to see is this low wash shear stress. And so right now, we're currently trying to evaluate what is the relationship between shear stress and new intimate uh, tissue forming in these patients. And that is the interest of our shear stent trial, which uh, is sponsored by Medtronic. Um, so we have initially enrolled 86 patients, but we have 60 patients with OCT imaging, both at baseline and a 12-month follow-up. And so we are examining the relationship between the shear stress computed from the baseline imaging and the new intimate thickness from the 12-month follow-up images. And so this graphic illustrates how that process is working. We calculate the wall shear stress in our simulation using computational fluid dynamics. You can kind of see the Im imprint of the stent also in that image. Then we register the baseline of follow-up OCT images so that we can have a one-to-one -one match. Um, we have the same area at baseline and follow-up. And then we look at how much that new, in or how, or how much that new intima has grown um, at that 12-month follow-up point, which is highlighted in the white. Then finally, we, we extract the corresponding wash shear stress and new intimate thickness value. You can see that number three, basically we slice the image along its length and we lay it out. Uh, and you can see that we were able to correlate both wash shear stress and new intimate thickness. And so we're looking at the relationship between wash shear stress and new intimate thickness. And this is an example of one of the patients. And hopefully by the end of the month, we'll have this full analysis done um, for the study. So moving out of simulations, again, back towards artificial intelligence. I'm um, talking about our, our deep IVIS, which is an automated intravascular ultrasound image an analysis algorithm. It's capable of segmenting um, images from multiple vendors, which is a little bit different from a lot of the current offerings published. Um, 20 megahertz, 14, 45 megahertz IVIS images. On the bottom left, you can see some of the, um, the red and the yellow indicate the lumen and the external elastic lamina identified by the algorithm. And then the accuracy of it can be shown in the top right where we have plaque burden, uh, a correlation coefficient of 0 0.87, so very strong, and for luminary on the bottom. 
we have a correlation coefficient of 0 0.9. So one thing we can do with this is we can do automatic stent detection, which would helps us to allow us for automated automated detection of underexpansion. So in the in the top right we have a, a we have a IVIS pullback for an underexpanded and fully expanded stent. And the cartoon is what our algorithm is able to generate, where in yellow it automatically identifies the underexpanded stent, and on the right it can identify the fully it shows a, a fully expanded stent. Uh, and then the accuracy of this we can see below um, with the high sensitivity and specificity for for um, the 20, 40, and 45 megahertz uh, IVIS catheters. Um, we, we've also uh, developed the um, an, an interface for, for manually interacting with this program. You can see here, someone can change it if they're unhappy with the, uh, the output of the algorithm. Okay, and then, so moving on to the, the final thing I'd, I'd like to talk about then is our, our statistical shape analysis of, of left, left atrium and appendage. So on, on the far left, we can start off at the top. We, we have an image, a segmentation of the heart chambers. Um, then what we do next is isolate uh, the atrium or the atrium and the uh, pulmonaries. Uh, and then from that, we just isolate the atrium by itself, removing the pulmonaries and removing the appendage. So then in the middle, we can see we have over 100 patients, and this is what the isolated atrium looks like by itself. And so what that allows us to do then is actually look at what, how shape varies between across a population. So we can look at, um, we can build basically what the average left atrium will look like, and then we can see how shape varies across that left atrium. So it's actually very, very similar to the uh, pod that we just saw that we're looking at these different modes that actually identify how shape changes across the population. Um, and so you can't, you know, it's been shown that left atrium volume is associated with AFib, um, but, you know, volume is a bit of a crude diagnostic. So we're trying to use much more um, high dimensional descriptors of shape. As you can see, you know, mode one and mode two and mode three are basically the primary way shape differs across this population. Um, you know, you can't really describe it very well in words, but a computer can, you know, show it and describe it numerically. And so the next step is to try and take these shape modes and associate them with actual outcomes in patients. So in conclusion, um, simulation usage, I think, will become part of the workflow for device development and testing. Uh, in silico trials, may become part of the pathway towards human trials. We could have a pathway towards in silico animal humans. Uh, the use of AI is going to continue to grow, leading to more efficient medical image interpretation, less reliance on manual annotations, um, performing first and second glances of, of medical images. Uh, and then I think we're going to see more randomized trials specifically for AI doing disease classification. And so the Georgia Center for Cardiovascular Biomechanics and Data Modeling combines both of these technologies also to be at the forefront of cardiovascular research and innovation. Okay, uh, thank you. And that's all I got. Come on up, guys. Um, so, David, that was a superb talk. Um, and uh, just like Amir's talk, I, I just want you all to enjoy 
the, the caliber of these presentations. Um, so I think what we thought we'd do, Suzanne, we, how much time do we have for the next session? Great. So um, let's see, maybe we can have, um, Ramesh, do you wanna come up? And Greg, do you feel like coming up? Um, what, what I thought we'd do is, let's see, do we have enough? We don't have one other seat. Um, yeah, let's, let's get one other seat. Because what I thought we'd do is basically have our two speakers and the panelists and really engage in a conversation of Q&A and, and also get the audience involved. Um, just, um, just comments and maybe what we could do is, if anyone has questions, I mean, I feel like the two talks were so amazing and different. And it's actually true that Amir as a cardiologist was zoomed in on sort of biomechanics and engineering side and, and David as an engineer, but obviously you can't tell he's also not a cardiologist, right? Uh, but he kind of zoomed out and gave us kind of a global 30,000 foot view of artificial intelligence, machine learning, the difference between simulations and um, AI. So, and then we've got uh, Dr. Jamie Burkle and Dr. Amesh Subramaniam, who are, as you know, amazing cardiologists and really experts in preventive cardiology metabolism. And Dr. Giuliano, who's an interventional cardiologist and runs the whole inpatient cardiology service line for GHI to kind of really ask questions and interact. So I'm, I'm only describing what folks are gonna look like and, and maybe we can spend 30 minutes. And if you like, maybe I'll start with a question just to get the folks warmed up. Um, so um, first question to Amir. Um, so Amir, as a clinical cardiologist that's really spent a lot of time investigating coronary physiology um, and now kind of pivoting on, in the engineering world to try to accelerate some of the computations and try to bring them to real time. So I guess my question to you is, you know, how far do you think we are um, in, in using some of these computational techniques that you pointed out, some of the simulations in real time, whether it's, you know, instantaneous FFR or IFR, or whether it's some shear stress information in order to help guide percutaneous interventions. I mean, it's a great theory. How far are we to bringing this to real time and ultimately to clinical care? Um, you know, that is a question that, um, that is a question that uh, is, uh, is also concerning for me because what I've, what I've realized, and I would actually love to know what you think, is that when you go on the extremes, when something is tight, the numbers really co correlate well. When some things are not tight, the numbers correlate well. Is in that gray area, as we call it, is something needs to be done. That's where the variability comes in and your modeling becomes very important. You know, there was a recent uh, publication where looked at uh, CTFFR. The more you got tighter on the gray, the accuracy dropped significantly from invasive to the, the model. So I, I think we are there where these, where we have the ability of looking at, in general, is something is really tight or not. But I have, um, I think we, we have more work to do in that 
that focal area we're looking at to see where the difference will be made. Great. Yeah, so we're talking about lesion severity using CT. So let me come over to talk to Jamie and Ramesh because you guys read CT scans and maybe spending a few minutes kind of focusing in on comp computed physiology to, with CT imaging. So first, you know, a comment on each of you as to where you see CT, coronary CT angiography going with respect to risk stratification compared to nuclear and PET and stress echo. And then secondly, and Ramesh, I know you've had a lot of experience with the CTFFR and reading it, and what's been your experience with it, um, particularly in the gray zone that Amir points out. It, it's easier when it's a very, very severe lesion, but you really need it in that intermediate zone. So any comments or discussion? Well, I'll start from, uh, I don't read CT, but I read uh, PET CT and nuclear imaging. So um, from a physician's perspective, it's really critical for us to determine from the beginning if we're doing physiologic assessment or anatomic assessment, right? So when a patient comes to us and the patient has symptoms, perhaps exertion related, I'd like to know the physiology of it. I'd like to know if the patient has exercise-induced ischemia. And I'm going to use my different imaging modalities to determine that, whether it's going to be nuclear perfusion, whether it's uh, with uh, PET imaging or with SPECT or stress echocardiography or dobutamine echocardiography. But I'm going to try to do some stress-induced uh, assessment of, of flow and, and function, ventricular function. Um, on the other hand, if you have a patient that uh, comes to me and you, the answer is, does a patient have coronary artery disease? The answer that you're looking for is, does a patient have coronary artery disease or not? Then in that case, I, I think that anatomic assessment is where uh, I want to go. And I will order a coronary C, uh, CTA or CCTA. And I will ask, ask Ramesh to read the study for me. <laughs> and then I'll call him back and tell him that the calcium score is 6,000. And I can't, <laughs> like I did yesterday, I think. <laughs> But anyway, first of all, uh, thank you for uh, having me here. And I want to uh, let the two speakers know that I really enjoyed their talks. Uh, and even though I'm not an interventionalist, um, I was able to follow most of it. <laughs> but, you know, Habib, you brought up a good question about the role of CT in prevention, especially. Um, and I think that's where it's going, no doubt about it. Um, and I think even though Jamie doesn't read CT, she would probably agree as well. Um, and I'm not just talking about calcium scores, but CCTA as a way to risk stratify people. I think that's where we're heading. And the reason I believe that is because there's so much about plaque composition, plaque characterization, uh, plaque features that make a big difference in predicting future risk. And there's a lot of data to support this. In addition to the what Dr. Latfi talked about as far as coronary physiology and uh, computational fluid dynamics, there's actually something about the plaque features um, that prevent future events. Interestingly, I want to comment on one thing you, you mentioned. When people use CT, you said they tend to stent more, correct? And when they do the invasive angiogram, they stent less. When they do IVIS, they stent more, am I correct? So interesting, I think that's interesting because recently, there's been data showing that combining FFRCT with plaque characterization is the future, and there's, there's promise there. And besides the usual FFRCT employing uh, CFD, computational fluid dynamics, looking at the plaque characteristics itself helps 
actually evaluate the chemodynamic significance is what they're finding, that it, it plays a role in addition to CFD. And I, I think, David, you were actually on this conference uh, call yesterday or the day before, where they're actually looking at software using AI, uh, combining these two features, plaque characterization, as well as computational fluid dynamics. So getting back to what you said, maybe I'm wondering the reason that people that got CT got stented more is because of the plaque features in addition to just the computational fluid dynamics, maybe beyond just the, you know, just the reflex of seeing the plaque, there may be something to it. Yeah, wonderful insights and great questions. Um, maybe David, you, you may wanna comment a little bit on some aspects. So what we heard Dr. Burkle said is as a clinician, he finds a lot of value. The question is whether they have ischemia is to get them on the treadmill, reproduce their symptoms, and then assess their ischemia with PET spec or maybe stress echo. And Dr. Subramaniam is focusing on the importance of, um, um, you know, CT has become really our gold standard for assessing whether someone has coronary atherosclerosis, whether it's calcium scores or the type of plaque and whether there's remodeling, whether soft plaque or plaque that's potentially vulnerable to causing a problem down the line. Um, so, David, um, maybe you can comment a little bit on, you know, this kind of interplay between the anatomic luminal narrowing on CT and then the remodeling that one sees in the wall, whether it's plaque composition or glacovian remodeling, and how that impacts the computational measurements, or does it? Yeah, uh, with the computational measurements, you know, primarily it is just the the lumen diameter that's going to drive it. Um, I, I think, you know, one thing we're interested in also, whether it is the case, is if you do have that epicardial disease, you know, I think that correlates pretty strongly with uh, microvascular disease. And so, you know, if you have a lot of microvascular disease, that means you can't actually, you know, when you get hyperemia, you, um, you know, you can't fully dilate those arteries. And, um, you know, if you're doing these simulations, you, you typically they don't take into account microvascular disease, so there can be error in in the simulation. So you know if it, I, I think there is there is a relationship between the epicardial and the microvascular disease. I think that might play out a little bit in terms of how the the accuracy of these simulations. Um, and so there is definitely an inherent weakness in these simulations that there is an assumption that you know everybody's microvascular kind of performs you know, dilates normally, but, you know, in reality, it's, it doesn't. And um, it's, it, it drives differences between the measured FFR values in the cath lab and the simulated values using FFRCT. Great. Well, uh, let me bring Greg in. Um, he may have a comment or a question himself, but I'm going to, I'm going to drive you to a question here and you can, but so my question to you, and you can comment freely, obviously, is um, sort of as a, seasoned clinician interventionalist, if you do see a, let's say you, someone comes to the cath lab, they have atypical chest pain, they have, you know, a small fixed defect in the anterior wall, right? So small fixed defect in the anterior wall, they've walked seven minutes, they had shortness of breath on the treadmill, and they end up coming, no chest pain, but shortness of breath, they come to the cath lab and you find a 40% 40 to 50% lesion in the proximal LED. The question is, is it, is it an innocent bystander? 
or is it hemodynamically significant or not? How do you aggregate the symptoms, the non-invasive data with that 40% lesion to make your decisions in the cath lab? Well, I'll take the question first and then I'll pose a question. Um, so uh, the modality of the fixed defect was what? Okay. So I asked that to differentiate it from uh, MIBI, which it can, it can be more fraught with breast attenuation artifact in that part of the heart. So SPECT is, is more reliable. So, I mean, uh, if it's a 50% lesion, I would put a pressure wire down and assess either instantaneous uh, fractional flow reserve or FFR fractional flow reserve and uh, try to assess physiology, meaning is that plaque that to my eye looks like 50% actually uh, limiting blood flow um, in some way to lead to the breathlessness in this case, which can be an anginal equivalent. Um, I would point out that walking seven minutes on the treadmill is already a pretty decent predictor of a good outcome. So the goal, and, I, and this is getting at my question now, our goal, we have to remember, is not just fixing a, a, a lesion in a vessel. Our goal is to either make the patient feel better, or in this case, an outpatient elective, or try to make them live longer. And we know we don't make them live longer by putting stents in stable patients, okay? Because we're not, we have not found the holy grail yet. We're, we're trying, these guys are trying. Amir's work is, is very helpful. And, and the CT guidance, but we don't know how to predict what plaque is gonna rupture five years from now, three years from now, next week. We can only characterize the plaque by amount of calcium, amount of atherosclerosis. And so I just, I just wonder, and this is the question part, has our technology advanced beyond um, our knowledge base? And, and are we at risk of falling in the trap of thinking we know uh, and able to predict, and then gonna start stenting those lesions um, because that's a danger I fear. So I, I'm gonna ask that to David. <laughs> um, well, I think with the technology, you know, the, a lot of it still needs to be proven. Um, and as I was kind of showing earlier, you know, we, we need a lot of these randomized clinical trials, right? That's, I think that, that that's, how you prove any any kind of technology in uh, in medicine? So, you know, uh, uh, until that evidence you know comes in from 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 randomized trials, uh, you know, I, I think you know a lot of these technologies should be eyed with a bit of um, um, skepticism, maybe. Jamie, I'll, I'll I'll get it to you. Let me just make a comment on that as well, because I think one of the um, papers, David, that you presented was the work that was published in Jack in 2018, where um, just to reiterate that, because that, that paper uh, and Arnav Kumar was a fellow in the lab who's, who's currently an interventional fellow at the Brigham. Um, that was a cool study because we basically asked the question Greg's asking is that, look, you, you have patients from FAME2 and the medical therapy arm of FAME2, not randomized PCI, who all had a positive FFR, right? So these were patients that were in a trial with ischemia-provoking lesions that because of what Greg said, if you have chronic coronary disease, by stenting you, you're not gonna live longer. You're gonna make your angina and your symptoms better. So this trial, FAME2, randomized patients to FFR-guided stenting 
versus medical therapy. And so what we did is we said, let's take the medical therapy arm of FAME2, right? So patients with positive FFRs that were treated medically. And it turns out of them, about 10% actually had a myocardial infarction over three years in that vessel, right? They were treated medically, 10% had NMI. And what we did is we said, and that David showed this paper, is we said, okay, let's take those, uh, those patients with positive FFRs that were treated medically for three years, of which 10% had NMI, and let's propensity match those that had an MI with those that didn't have an MI. And then let's do wall shear stress analysis, right? Um, and that's when we found that those with high wall shear stress had a much higher likelihood of having a future infarction. Now, it was a very small data set, and to your point, it was hypothesis generating. Um, but I think it's a proof of principle because this concept of wall shear stress is the frictional force of blood as it exerts against the wall. It might seem like, you know, kind of a color-coded map, but there's 20 years of vascular biology that ties those mechanisms to adverse outcomes. We know that if you have high wall shear stress, you change meta, uh, matrix metalloproteinases that soften the plaque that might cause an infarct. So there's a lot of mechanistic links that ties into that observational study. Um, I agree we're not there, but David says we need large clinical trials to take those patients and randomize them. Um, I guess my question to you, David, because you gave a fantastic talk about in silico trials, um, is that could, could some of these be modeled? Could you, could you model that? question and answer it in an in silico trial before we have the resources and, and the to do a clinical trial. So yeah, I, I guess that, that was kind of difficult. So you you remember saying if a patient was say at high wash or stress in their um in their proximal lesion that you know we would in silico stent them potentially and try and track how, how they do. Um I, I would say Right now, we probably can't do something like that because you know, you're trying. You need to really incorporate a lot of biology on top of the actual physics of the simulations. Um, so it gets you know quite difficult. You know the the simulations um, are good, very good at just doing a snapshot of what your you know your hemodynamic environment is at a particular point in time based on the imaging. But right now, with with simulations, you know we can't. You know, looking at dynamic changes. Uh, is not something that we can do very well right now. Well, well, great. I, I, Jamie had a question. I want to make sure um, because I, I do think that when you think about plaque, right, and you think about whether, I mean, and I see Dr. Guys there, who, that's very, very exciting. Um, and maybe, uh, maybe at the end, um, Sloan, you should come down and say a word or two because we're really excited to have you on board as one of our phenomenal new heart surgeons. But when you think about coronary physiology and the decision of whether to revascularize a patient or not, it's a dichotomous decision, right? You either revascularize or you don't revascularize. And most of the trials, Amir, you showed the beautiful trials, the initial defer trial and all the other trials, basically say, okay, if you stent the vessel, for instance, in that case, or you don't, the question is, what's the control arm? And the control arm at the time of the defer, defer trial was aspirin, and if you're lucky, a statin. 
So this is where our preventive cardiologists come in because the medical therapy for ischemic heart disease has exploded. It's gone from two or three drugs to so much now, the armamentarium. So the control arm and all these trials is changing dramatically. So any revascularization you do has to you know, potentially be better than that. Anyway, Jamie, talk about that and any other thoughts. Yes, thank you. And uh, this is a follow-up to uh, Greg's comment and your comment about how in the interventional cardiology world, we're really trying to come up with markers, right? And, and trying to see what uh, else can we do in addition to just this, the standard analysis of a patient post-percutaneous coronary intervention to see uh, what is going to put this patient additional risk for having a future event, right? And yes, uh, every single clinical trial with percutaneous vascularization has failed to show a prolonged survival or decrease in, in future cardiovascular events. But the one treatment that will definitely impact survival and future events is lipid lowering therapy. And that's where we, come, we were that discussing uh, uh, because we've moved forward from just statin to all patients to combination therapy to bring the LDL really to the lowest number we can get. When we are born, our LDLs are in the 30s. And every single clinical trial, especially with PCS kind of inhibitors, we're seeing that when you drop the LDL to those levels below 40, that's when you get the lowest uh, future cardiovascular events. So this is kind of like a teamwork, right? So we get the interventional cardiologists revascularizing the vessels to make sure there's no stenosis to uh, alleviate ischemia. But on the other hand, don't forget about maximum medical therapy that includes aggressive LDL reduction, right? And I just have a quick question for David. Um, your uh, PREDICT LLA trial, um, why do you think it failed? What do you think did not reach statistical significance? The data was so solid, the, the uh, computational data was there, the area under the curve looked amazing. So why do you think the trial failed to reach statistical significance? Yeah, I, I think it was, it's just actually a real hard endpoint for, for simulation-based technology. Um, I, I, you know, whether, I guess, you know, they're trying to simulate whether, um, you know, you still get flow into the, uh, into the um, appendage. Um, and that these simulations where they expand the uh, amulet device, you know, they're not, you know, they're not always going to match how it's going to expand um, in your, in your, in your appendage. So I think it was just maybe, I don't know, too difficult an endpoint, endpoint to hit. Mir, you can, um, so I was just going to say sort of someone who thinks a lot about clinical trials and, and you know, the, the journals and stuff. I mean, I think it failed, number one, because it, you know, you have to do power calculations to figure out what's the delta you expect between the two arms. And as David pointed out, I mean, there were differences between the two arms, but with 100 patients, the p-value was 0.08. And then the primary endpoint was the amount of significant leakage after the amulet deployment. And there were differences. So if you doubled the power calculations, a brand new trial, you can't even inform the power calculations because it's never been done before. So it could have been underpowered. And then number two, to your point, is the primary endpoint. So a lot of secondary endpoints were met, right? They put fewer devices in, it was faster, et cetera. So it's very promising in my mind that the first you know, randomized study like that, or that simulation study is, was as good as it was. So um, from my perspective, uh, what have you said is completely right. What I was surprised about was severe leakage occurred 45% of the time. So if you have 45% of the time you have severe leakage, you shouldn't put the device in. 
right? Because the, your entire point is to seal the appendage. And we know, you know, uh, in the Watchman world, they talk about less than five millimeters. But if you even do more analysis, any kind of leakage seems to um, worsen outcomes, which at the end of the day, we're using uh, leakage as a surrogate for future stroke. So the fact that you had 45% and 26% leakage, even in the, is huge in my mind. So that that also goes against what you know about the, at least the randomized, where you're talking about anywhere from two to 5% at 45 days. So that number is the one that really surprised me, the degree of leakage that that was uh, observed in, in those studies. And I was gonna come back to your point. You are absolutely, I think, right i think for stable coronary disease as you mentioned you know we have better and better treatments i think is using coronary ct and these modalities can you hone down on the highest risk people to give them the greatest benefit right and fundamentally it comes down to the number needed to treat if you want to treat everyone you can but the key question is who can you who can you treat with the greatest impact for long term effect because as going back to randomized trials, you're looking at population, not individuals. So you can't predict when you see someone and you say, oh, your average risk of stroke or death in 10 years is 7.5. That's not an individual risk. That's a population risk. You have no idea if your treatment is actually ha has going to have the greatest impact on that person. And you're you know, using coronary CT and the combination modality, hopefully you can hone down to the highest risk population. We know with prospect study, we couldn't find that, but. Uh, I can't believe you just invoked prospect study because that's exactly what I was gonna go to right now. So correct me, yeah, I know. So I, I, wanted to, I wanted to talk about the prospect study in regard to shear stress um, and uh, 2,500 patients in prospect 2000, do you recall? So th this was almost a decade ago now, and basically uh, patients came in who uh, had coronary angiography and identified um, all three vessels ultrasound was performed in to identify plaques, and then it tried to predict uh, which plaques um, were going to rupture in the future. So again, trying to get to that holy grail. Um, and uh, what we found was where the disease was at, at baseline is not where the likely future heart attack plaque rupture was. So arteries are really long. There may be a pothole in one place, but the pothole that's going to be the heart attack down the road may not even be visible right now. Um, and so I'm just wondering if you married shear stress with 670. I'm just wondering if you married shear stress on top of that prospect data set, which you probably already done. Um, um, so, so, you know, that would be interesting. And then I, I, I'll bring that into the last hypothesis, which, which was uh, my research mentor's um, um, original thought, which was heart attacks that kill people are typically in the first third of the vessel, the proximal third of arteries. So he, he postulated, and we could do this with AI potentially, if you just prophylactically stented the proximal third of all the three main coronaries, um, 
could we prevent heart attacks down the road? Um, and, and, and the reason it never went forward was because it's not ethical probably to stent three arteries like that, but you could do it with AI. Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you could run those simulations for sure um, with stented um, arteries. Again, you, and you can look at the shear stress and everything, but you do you still have that limitation of the dynamic changes over time that become very difficult to to um, you know to, to simulate. Um, I don't know if you can do it just based on data from you know combining lots of studies. Maybe I'm not sure where that's where AI might come in. Well, listen, I mean, this conversation can go on for a while, but I, I can see Suzanne is sending us furious text messages, yanking us off the phone. See, you get these guys there. There's such great thought. Um, listen, let me just thank um, Amir for coming over and just enlightening us with a great talk. Um, and I also want to say how proud I am uh, of David's leadership. And you can see how he's really helping taking us to the next level, um, and um, not only at the at, at the center, but in general, what an opportunity it is for us to all integrate, you know, machine learning, artificial intelligence, biomechanics, and really remain on the cutting edge of things. And I also want to, uh, you know, thank my partners for coming up and enlightening us. Um, if I had two seconds, I would like to ask um, our maybe Sloan Guy to pop down real quick. So um, so listen, ladies and gentlemen, I am absolutely thrilled that Dr. Guy is gonna be joining us as head of robotic surgery. Um, Sloan is um, one of the premier cardiovascular surgeons in the country and well, he's joining us shortly. So Sloan, welcome. Thank, thank you so much. I appreciate the uh, warm welcome, and these were some uh, interesting talks, to say the least. I do have one question for this group, since you've given me the... Um, I've got a disease process that has presented itself to me uh, because of my interest in active involvement in robotic cardiac surgery, and that's myocardial bridging. And it's amazing. There's this huge network of people out there, and somehow I ended up on their, uh, their Facebook pages someone that can be helpful. And it's not a disease that I really understood well when I first started treating it. They come to me because I can unroof them robotically. The question is, should we unroof them? The reality is about 80% of them do improve if they've had you know, a positive uh, stress test or IFR. But uh, do you guys have any thoughts on how we might better understand that you know, obviously controversial disease? I don't have the answers. Um, I, I will tell you, and I'd love to hear Habib's comment on, on assessing a bridge using physiology is extremely difficult. And, um, and, and, and I think it's fraught with error. Um, so I'm not sure if uh, the current technology is the right way to do it. I will say that um, when you have bridging, um, it often leads to atherosclerosis in the area. Um, but uh, the general philosophy I've practiced by is that, that that's very unlikely to be causing symptoms. Um, so I, I, I don't know what the placebo effect is by unroofing um, or not, but I think it's, it's, uh, it's a great question and I don't know that we know the answer. 
Well, I'm sure that amongst this uh, group of experienced physicians, uh, you, you'll get a lot of opinions on that. And I guess I'm just looking over at our time because this topic could go on for a while. Um, but I agree with you that certainly standard FFR or IFR is not ideal, um, but people have used dobutamine pressure wires and we've uh, you know, done some simulations with wall shear stress and you do get more plaque formation at the, at the entrance of the bridge. Um, and there was a really nice, um, I'm biased to say nice, but we wrote a state-of-the-art paper in Jack on microbial bridging a few years ago. Uh, which kind of aggregated the data on, on roofing. And one thing we do know is you don't want to stent bridges <laughs> because you do get collapsing. So medical therapy is pretty good. You know, it actually does help quite a lot, beta blockers, calcium blockers, et cetera. But to Greg's point, it's often hard to tell if the symptoms are purely coming from that. And it's mo most often the LAD, very occasionally in the circ and rarely in the right coronary. So a lot more exciting things to talk about, but um, I think we'll stop right here and thank everyone for participating on this part. Suzanne. Thank you to our panelists. Let's give them all a round of applause. Thank you all for being here. Thank you to everybody who joined online. This concludes our session for today. Thank you.